Before we get into this episode, a content warning. We talk about mental health and suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 800-273-8255 in the United States or 1-833-456-4566 in Canada. Please take care while listening. Welcome to Burn It All Down. Amir here, and I am beyond excited today because we have the one and only Brian. No, look, I can't even say it. Brianna. I know. And it was like (laughs) one of those things where it's like, now I'm going to get so happy. Okay. (laughs) I have the one and only Brianna Scurry, who barely needs an introduction because if you don't know, you should know. And also her accomplishments are too long to list, but you have to know the extreme uh, successful goalkeeper of the U.S. women's national team, multiple-time Olympic medalist, um, got some World Cup, you know, hardware as well, has had such an illustrious career, and it is the best time to be talking because we're also celebrating Title IX. There's been an overlooked trailblazer, um, both within the sport of soccer but also in women's sports, and we are very excited because she has written a book Um, along with Wayne Coffey called My Greatest Save, The Brave Barrier-Breaking Journey of a World Champion Goalkeeper. I am so, so, so happy to have you join Burn It All Down. Thank you. You really threw your pen at this book. (laughs) You did not hold back. And you said from the start you weren't going to hold back. And I am, for one, speaking on behalf of all the little girls, but especially little Black girls who who you meant so much for, to see your story, to be able to like hold your story in your words on your terms is amazing. And so I wanted to just start by asking you, how does it feel to have your story out now? It, it feels fantastic. And, and thanks so much for having me. It's an honor uh, to be talking with you. I decided um, a long time ago that I needed to be able to be authentic and real and true to not only the amazing of my life, but also the devastating things. So before we even got started writing this book and and I met with Wayne, am I ready? Am I ready to tell the stories and tell my journey in the proper way? Because I didn't want to candy coat anything. I felt like it was important for me to go into those dark rooms that maybe I had padlocked and and, and put up barriers that I haven't been in for years to, to go in there because you got to talk about all of it if you're going to talk about any of it. And so um, I was finally ready in 2019 and and we were on our way and I met with Wayne and he was fantastic. And of course, he's very accomplished, uh, a five times New York Times bestselling author, fantastic writer, great advocate for women's sports in general. And so we we got underway um, and here it is. And it's absolutely phenomenal. I really encourage everybody to read it. And right off the bat, you're hit in the face with the strength of a Michelle Akers kick, right? Yes. With how real and authentic it, it feels. I really appreciate that. And I think that sometimes when people come to your story, they might know you as, oh, the black goalkeeper, right? They might think of 99. They might think of, you know, Brazil. Like they, I feel like people have their own touchstone moments. But part of what you're saying is like, it's all bundled up together, actually, right? It's not just about being the only openly gay person on your soccer team or the only black girl on your soccer team growing up playing the sport. But there's all of these spaces in which you're finding yourself both everywhere and nowhere and, and making these connections. So what was the most challenging part of your story to write? So I made that pledge to myself to be authentic. And there were days when I knew that Wayne and I were going to talk about really hard things, in particular, um, the deaths of both of my parents, especially my dad, since he was the first one. Um, And I had already decided that I was going to go there. But in order to tell it um, and give it the honor it deserved, I had to literally put myself in the space, uh, the feeling space of that, and 
go into that room and sit in there. And so what would happen sometimes for me was Wayne and I would talk about something really heavy and half the book is heavy, you know, for basically. And it would stick, it would stick to me, you know? And so we talk about it and then we'd be done and I would still dwell in that space. And I noticed that I would have a bit of a, of a, of a heaviness on me. Mm. And it took me a little while to realize why that was happening and actually was a good thing because that meant that I was being true and, and honoring those different times. Um, especially, you know, losing my mom and my dad in particular, um, the depths of my despair during my head injury, uh, you know, just how I felt about the Hope Solo situation, all those different things required absolute authenticity about it. Yeah. And then I was out there, but you're also doing this book tour. And I know that we're coming up on the anniversary of your father's passing and it's Father's Day. And I wanted to acknowledge and hold space for that as well. I so enjoyed getting a glimpse into your family and the history you embedded it in. Um, we don't pop up from nowhere. And you, you know, brought us through the impact of the transatlantic slave trade and up through the Gulf Coast. Um, talked about football. Touchdown was my first word. I found a lot of resonance in that. Why was it important to embed your family history within a project of Black history um, in order to like ground your story in a foundation beyond yourself? I think that was uh, really relevant and important to do because my mom and dad were so vital in me becoming um, who I became. And so it made sense to literally pay homage to them and actually to really, you know, dive deeper into who they were before me. Mm. And so that was important to me. My, my brother, my biggest brother, Ronnie, um, he was vital in, in helping with that. Cause I obviously wouldn't know. Also, I thought it was important to understand my family history because when you think about your family history, a lot of times, unless you're like in the business of understanding history, you know your your perspective right. of your parents. And I wanted to be able to tell uh, the tale of, of my mom and dad, for example, how they met, I didn't know. And so my brother knew. Uh, different things like that, um, different reasons. Maybe the story I knew wasn't the story he knew and mm -hmm. it could bring texture to it. And right. somehow between the two of us, we could uh, make the story true. And so um, it was so important to me because this book is also about honoring both of them. Uh, and they saw a lot of my success, but unfortunately not all of it. And so I, it was important to me to have them written in a way that they deserved. And it's beautiful. Thank you. Um, and then we also kind of get to see you before soccer, right? Like we get yeah. to see you playing football and the deal you made with your mom about who I felt your pain when you said, oh, I was 102 on that scale <laughs> and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't play football anymore. Yeah. And so you, your family are from the Gulf Coast to Galveston, you know, area, but then you move and you end up in Lily White, Minnesota. Yes. <laughs> um, which is a change. Yeah. <laughs> and you talk about navigating that. Um, and, and it coincides with, you know, you getting into soccer and immediate, I didn't know you started out in goal immediately. Like, but I'm a biased striker. You'd have to trick me to be in goal. It would be a whole <laughs> long story about some force of hand. So <laughs> when you first were introduced to the game, can you just talk a little bit about what drew you? Like, what was it like going into that space, into these new environments? Um, were you cognizant of, of being the only Black girl? Or it was just kind of like, yeah, but I'm still going to rock out. Did it give you an extra drive? Like, what was your mentality um, when you moved into those spaces? Yeah, I, I think the the initial framework that I was thinking about was I just want to play the sport, whatever it was. So my classroom, uh, my teachers in my classroom used to have these flyers that they handed out, letting us know that certain sports were going to um, have sign up time. And I would run home and, and show my mom and dad the, the piece of paper. And I remember 
the soccer, uh, CD, CDAA, Champlin Dayton Athletic Association soccer uh, paper. And I brought it home and they were like, sure, you can play. And so I decided, okay, great. This is awesome. I'm going to do it. Didn't know, not that I cared, that it was a boys team that I was signing up for. And it was, I was the only girl on the boys team. And so that's A, how I ended up there. B, I ended up in the goal because uh, my coach in his infinite wisdom <laughs> thought it was a good idea to put the only girl in the goal right. to, to protect me. <laughs> we all know that's backwards. Right. <laughs> Rather dangerous in the goal, actually, comparatively. <laughs> so think about it. Well, for you a know, second. sexism doesn't make sense. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? What was he thinking? And so, yeah, I ended up playing in the goal and to be like completely fair to the coach and, and the boys on the team, right. they were great. They were wonderful. And I, I knew I was the only girl on the boys team. There really wasn't anything that happened that I recall that was uh, derogatory or meant to make fun of me in any way or, you know, put me down. And the next season I played soccer again and then more girls teams had evolved by then. And so I played on the girls team from there. And then I actually ventured into the field away from the goal and the siren call of the goal brought me back a couple (laughs) years later. And so um, I don't know how to explain that other than I figured I could prevent the other team from winning if I was in there. Mm. <laughs> so you can score all you want, but if they score just as many, then you can't win. So right. that made a lot of sense. You're like, I can control. <laughs> I am a control freak. Which is wild to me. Cause I'm just like, you're just like, that goal is so big. So big. Like there's balls flying at you. Like, and I still am baffled by the ilks of y'all who are like willingly like, yes, I'm going to play goal. But I, I get the control aspect. Like that's something I can, kind of understand but it just feels to me like wow like the spotlight is on you in just like a different way like do you have saves that you think about that you replay that still haunt you or that you still like make you feel good do you do that still yeah I have one save okay so that's a that's a bit of a loaded question yeah so one game, one save that I didn't make that I regretted for the longest time was against Norway in the 95 World Cup semifinal. Mm. And they had a corner kick and their six foot one forward nipped right in front of me and I missed it by literally an inch. She scored mm. and we couldn't score to save our lives that game. We hit all the, all the posts and the crossbar and everything and we couldn't score. We lost 1-0. However, that particular game, because we lost it, they did this train thing that I talk about in the book. Oh, yeah. And it was humiliating. And if not for that, that instance, that game became the fodder for incredible run of success for the next literally like five years. Right. And so if not for that loss, then do we have as great a success afterwards is the question. Right. right? So bad in the moment but maybe ending up like a silver lining and a fantastic thing later it lit a fire yeah exactly and so the other game that i can say about in terms of one of my greatest saves is not the one you might think right um just like my book (laughs) it's not what you think um is the a, a save i made in the 2004 olympic final Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, Cristiani ripped one from, I'd say, 18 yards out in the first 10 minutes of the game. And I literally think my dad, you know, floated me over there to save it because mm-hmm. I don't remember seeing it. I just went and got it literally like middle finger, fingertip <laughs> glove thing oh my and barely, barely saved it and went on. And so I always feel great about that one. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that was a brilliant save, but I I don't remember seeing it, mm. which is interesting. So instinctively, I saw it, but I don't recall. So that was pretty cool. So interesting. So I I got to see your co-author Wayne Coffey's daughter Sam play last night versus yeah. the Houston Dash. She plays for the Thorns, and it was Pride Night in the stadium, and so everybody was passing out hats. There was like really dope black 
um, lesbian band who played during halftime. Cool. It was joyful and it was celebratory. It was also um, the six year anniversary of the Pulse nightclub, you know, so there's there's a somberness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering what it feels like now to watch Pride celebrations across the league or to watch like where we are in terms of thinking about out athletes or in thinking about conversations we're having when you think about your career and navigating sexuality in the locker room and the media um, and being openly gay. Um, you talk, we get like all these wonderful glimpses of various relationships. I like want to fight the first girl who broke your heart. I'm just like, how do you ghost? How you ghost her? You know? Totally ghosted me. She ghosted you. It's rude. But, you know, I'm wondering, you know, I, I so I was adopted and um, I was raised by lesbians. And mm-hmm. one of the conversations we have sometimes generationally is that this generation, it's almost hard for them to believe. Right. It's mm-hmm. almost hard to grasp certain things about it. Um, and so I was thinking, you know, when you're at UMass and you're going to Northampton, you're going to Divas. Yeah. I spent high school sneaking into Divas. <laughs> like they just had pride, you know, this past weekend. And it looked very different even from when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like there's been a shift? Do you see a lot of continuity? Like there's still obviously things to work towards. Like how do you feel when you're watching this and thinking about and reflecting your own career and how you navigated sexuality through it? Well, I feel like there's been an incredible shift. And one of the things that I've noticed is in my own neighborhood where I live. I live in Mm. Alexandria, Virginia, which is a rather, you know, wealthy area. And I see, you know, just our gay flag out front. Uh, And then when June ticked over, then all of a sudden I'm seeing flags everywhere. And it's really cool. And it's not something I would have even thought to see. 10 years ago, for example, like you were saying. And also um, in 1999 Women's World Cup, I don't know if you've seen this footage lately, but if you recall, I went up to my partner at the time, Brandy, to give her a hug after we had won. And the camera follows me up the stands. And then as soon as they realize it's a girl, pans away. But in 2015 World Cup, when Abby, Abby yeah. went up to Sarah Whalen after the game, that was an iconic shot and video and audio Absolutely. of of that moment of the World Cup. And so yeah. right then I knew things had started to change. And bless her heart, and this is something I didn't know, and it's kind of part of the, the beauty of my life now. Abby did an interview for my upcoming documentary called The Only, and she said that I helped pave the way for her mm-hmm. and Megan Rapino to Rapino it, as she put it. <laughs> and I, I didn't know. I didn't know that, that they felt that way about what I had done to help them be authentically themselves yeah. and play at the same time. And so that's kind of stuff that I'm just like, wow. But I think it's so much better now. I'm, obviously, we have, we have work to do because there's still a lot of young people who struggle um, and families who struggle with it, but it's it's much better. It's getting there. Yeah, and we still, you know, I think at this time where you see, you know, we're celebrating Marta and, and Tony's wedding vows, or or Allie and Ashlyn and their baby, and like we're thinking about this. But then you also have media like looking at Sam Kerr and and, and Christy Mewis and being like, they are good friends. <laughs> it's like. What? Are they? <laughs> Are they really? You Have know? you looked at her Instagram? Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. So I think it's, you know, there's always, there always is work to be done, but I think that it's really interesting, right? And I want to get into one of those hard periods, which was about memory and about your brain injury and about yeah. memory in general. Yeah. Um, you shared in your book that your mom had Alzheimer's. Um, we've deal with Alzheimer's and and one of my mom says dementia um and it's you know somebody described it recently as like the long goodbye like it's really mm. something that I don't think we talk enough about yeah um but I was thinking about all the ways that like memory show up in your book yeah. memory legacy you know the the brain the mind and one of the things that has been most infuriating to me has been how I felt like at times you were erased because celebrations of Title IX or celebrations of the 99ers, 
get very whitewashed. It almost yes. replicates what you endured when you played. Mm-hmm. And we're we're trying very hard now at this anniversary of Title IX to, I mean, I'm I'm booked and busy, so I know I'm personally trying very hard to to talk about um the racial disparities in Title IX and to talk about this. But it seems like one of the themes that is hanging over and all through the pages of this book is about how we remember, what we remember, and who writes the stories that we remember, whether it's family history, right? Whether it's just your personal reckoning with what your own brain and memory has has done or what we collectively culturally remember mm-hmm. when we think of soccer, when we think about women's sports, when we think about trailblazers and how, why it take till 2017 to like, have you in the Hall of Fame? Right. And so these are this is a bounded question about memory and you can take it in whatever direction you want, but how yeah. we remember generally. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a great question. I would say it's interesting with regards to when we read things um that are referring to something we did written by yeah. someone else. And mm. sometimes my name is mentioned in discussion right. about the 99ers. And sometimes it's not mentioned in discussion about the 99ers, but there are certain names that are always mentioned in that, right. in that discussion. And I, it took me a long time to get to the point where I wasn't thinking to myself, well, where's my name in there? Right. You know, I made the save. No one else did that. It was just me. Everybody else made a kick, <laughs> but I was the right. only one that made a save. And so that's, that's something that I've, come to the point where I could deal with it and be uh, at peace with it. With regards to uh, Title IX and women's soccer in general, at the highest levels, you know, it's still, you know, four, five players on the national team when it comes down to the final rosters of color. And it's baffling to me because I played a long time ago. And you would think we'd be a little bit further along. And when I talk about myself in terms of who I was, I was a starter. I had played in the big games. If there was a big game that was going to be played, I was going to be playing in it. I was going to be starting most likely. Now that's Crystal Dunn, essentially, um, basically replacing me as that person. But no one else, maybe Kristen Press apparently not anymore, Right, was that other player that was playing with consistency. So it's not just enough to just have a few Black players on the team and not having them make a real impact on the pitch. It can be auxiliary or, you know, support players, but they're not factoring in into the big game at the big moments. And I mean, there's a lot of things to un to uh you know unbake there. Well, and then also you have like Crystal playing out of position. Yep. They move Midge around, and then the thing that's so frustrating about it is like at the beginning of the summer last summer when Summer Squad was announced, we at Burn All Down made a Black Girl Magic Summer Squad mm-hmm. thing, and I was amazed because it was actually like nine names long. And I was like, wow, who who would have thought this shirt went all the way down? <laughs> and, you know, within a month, when it get, got time to whittle down the roster, it was a fraction, yeah. right, of those dames. You had Kat left off, you had Midge left off, you had all these people brought in for, you know, racist-ass pace and power. But like you said, auxiliary positions or reserve or not, not actually seeing any playing time or not even being like... There's no reason that Crystal's not the face of the program. Right. Um, right. And so these are the the things that we're still kind of running up against at a time where the draft class, not this pandemic year, the year before, six out of 10 of the first draftees were Black girls from college. And so there's a way in which I think there has been clear and measurable proof that the game has grown and diversified at the youth level, mm-hmm. but it's like they're going into an old framework where people right. still don't know what to do with us they're still they're like they're like oh black girls play soccer and it's like yeah we yeah. told you this yeah. years ago <laughs> right it's like oh, i'm sure they're probably fast and physical exactly but it's like well when you say that you're trying you're actually saying to me that i may be fast and physical but i don't have skill exactly exactly you know? 
you know, I think that's why it's so important too that you are a goalkeeper, right? Where it was about, and like so often, I think sometimes commentary about you is like, oh, she's aggressive, and she, mm-hmm. which is qualities you need. You got the tattoo, you know, the panther. There's right. quali- you need to be aggressive <laughs> as a goalkeeper for right. sure, right. but at the same time, there's also technique, right? There's also skill there, and you know waiting for that person who's going to captain the midfield, meaning yes. that person who's going to be playing from behind and quarterbacking it, right. where it's not just pace and power and physicality that's just reproducing these kind of notions of what Black girls can and cannot do. Right. And I feel like that's kind of where we're still stuck in. And and that's a great point you make because a lot of that has to do with the, the mindset of the mentality of the people calling the game, broadcasting the game or whatnot, if you listen to the words that are used with, with reference to, say, a Kristen Press or Crystal Dunn right. or, or Midge, you, you hear somewhat different words than you hear in reference to Alex Morgan, uh, Lindsay Horan or, right. or, you know, Julie, Julie Ertz. Like it's, it's different words. And, and that's important to note that. And for me, I was a goalkeeper, but I was in the top five of the team that did media. Whenever there was some media duties doled out, I usually got some. And I often had reporters telling me how articulate I was. And I thought Mm. to myself, well, they they think it's a, it's a compliment. A compliment. Yeah. But I disagree with that compliment. Why are you shocked? I can put two sentences together, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So you, like you said, do not shy away from anything in this book. In fact, right away, you talk about that you're absolutely going to address Brazil. You're absolutely going to address hope. You're going to talk about what you have termed, you know, one of the hardest, most challenging 48 hours. Not only was the game not favorable, there was a fracture in the team. Um, There was selfish actions. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about having the balls to, to to do it in a time where so many people are like so media trained that that they wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, the, if I don't do it in my book, when would I do it? You know, and I feel mm. like I finally got to a point I mentioned um, earlier. If I'm going to write this book, I have to write all of it. Right. Including that, because that is something that. I personally have actually never gone into great depth with. I, for a long time, just avoided it altogether and just tried to keep it, you know, PC, good teammate kind of thing. And I figured my book is the once, one time for the last time to have to say exactly how I felt about it and how it actually was. Um, and right. I was willing to do that. And Wayne and I, we went after it and it was, it was written exactly how I feel. There was a literal coup (laughs) that she did on the team. I mean, the sad thing is, is she put herself before. And the truth is we were all in the same boat. And rather than have me at that time on that game, steer the helm of the boat, she decided to blow it up instead. And it's really a sad thing that that happened. Like, Do you find that there's still repercussions of that? You talk about how it 
it wasn't just a blow to you or the team, but really to the stability of, of women's soccer in this country. Were there pieces of blowback that like weren't visible to the public in terms of the fractures that maintained after that moment? It feels like a really pivotal moment in the kind of emerging generation, right, that came after that moment. I feel that it was. It, it's, it's, um, I can only speak to my feeling and my, you know, remembering and my point of view. Yeah. I'm sure that there were other repercussions for a lot of other people um, to this day who do not want to talk about it. Right. And that's okay. If, if they want to choose that, that's totally fine. And that's up to them. But I chose to make my stand and speak my truth in this book. And I meant for that to be done with everything in it. So one of the most important things I wanted to talk to you about is um, an injury you sustained and what you didn't know at the time would be your last game, which is wild to just go in and not know that it's the last time you're stepping foot on the pitch in that capacity. And I think some people might be aware, but I, I still think it's an underreported story and it was one that took you to certain depths. And so I want to know if you could talk a little bit about your your injury and and what it was like in the years following that. So for the longest time, when I talked about my head injury, I would start essentially with the game and the hit. Mm. Earlier that day, in the afternoon at the hotel, I had a weird feeling about that day. Mm. And I just didn't know you know how you can't really put your finger on it? You might realize it after the fact. Yeah, you're like, oh, that was Yeah, it. clearly that was it. And it was almost like, you know, something was trying to steer me away from going going there, going through that, going to that place mm-hmm. to unfortunately have that happen to me. And I mean, the, for the longest time, I was very mad at Sanderson, who's the one that came in. Um, with her toe trying to get in front and clattering into me. And then it took me a long time to get over that, to not blame her anymore. Because I was in such a dark place from there. It just was so heavy. Um, All the symptoms when she hit me in the side of my head with her knee. And if you look on online, you can find it. You can find it on YouTube and Mm. it doesn't really look like much at all. But the problem was is where she hit me and the fact that I didn't get a chance to brace at all because I didn't see it coming. And it was a hit like I had never felt before. I've had my bell rung a few times as a goalkeeper. I mean, I had Abby fall on my head for crying out loud, right? So more than (laughs) once. Um, But this time was different and I just knew it. I knew it right off the bat. And um, when I came off the pitch after playing for a few more minutes, you know, seven, eight minutes after I got hit, I was teetering to the left um, as I went to meet my trainer who was coming out to meet me. And she looked me in the eye and took my hand and said, are you okay? And I said, no. Mm. And normally as an athlete, you're like, oh, I'm fine. You know, shake it off. I was like, "Mm -mm." I knew it right then. That was something really wrong. Mm. Um, I didn't know how wrong but I knew it was different than any other time that I had a head injury before. And, um, you know, one, one day led into a week, into several weeks, then months, and then season ending and career ending and on and on. And I just eventually, after, you know, three years of being in the wilderness mm. is what I called it, um, and being detached. So... It's hard to explain to someone who's never had a head injury what it's like, but I like to use the word detached from everything, not just the game of soccer, but detached from myself and everyone around me. And that's why so many people with head injury end up isolating and withdrawing into themselves because it's just, it, it can go from a, from a clear sky to a cloudy sky all day, every day. Right. And it's just a really difficult situation to deal with. Mm. You know, there's a, um, a conversation that there's been a lot of attention paid on 
uh, CTE and head injury in American football, um, in hockey, in, in men's sports. Women's football is right there. Hella dangerous. One of my earliest memories was a girl who caught a cleat to the neck. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I just remember seeing it in slow motion. And yet it feels like there's such a gap between the funding and the research and like what we know about traumatic brain injury when it comes to women's soccer, when it comes to the susceptibility of it, when it comes to what technology we need or what do we need to protect athletes. I understand that withdrawal, that detachment, as you say. Mm -hmm. What was it like reattaching (laughs) in it seems like that's like another space you you have seized your platform to talk about all these things. It seems like there's that opportunity to also be a leading voice on traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like a lot because I can't imagine yeah. reattaching and then also being like, and now I will talk about For it my again. Next act, I will do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's a lot. I think it requires a lot of you to even go back to that place to to revisit the wilderness that you were in for three years, what was it like revisiting that for for this story? And how are you feeling now about everything that your brain has been through? So, yeah, that's a lot there, right? Um, yeah. I am an advocate for a lot of things, but everything I advocate for are things I've been through personally. Mm. So... I became an advocate for TBIs because after I got the surgery, um, which was experimental at the time, with the occipital nerves, the two nerves in the back of my neck, which is with a major um, issue in terms of my headaches, um, once I had that procedure done, I read an article um, that said 50% of women's soccer players will suffer from a concussion. And I Mm. thought to myself, wow, that's a lot. And how did I not know that? And I've got to do something. Now that I'm in that pool, let me try to help other people and also help myself. It was therapeutic to become an advocate because A, my sport needed it. And B, the face at the time of TBI, like you said, was, you know, big burly men's football players. And Also, big burly men's football players don't talk about the emotional part. And the emotional part is what ends up happening to them when they drive their car off the cliff or they shoot themselves in the chest because they want their brain researched once they're passed. To go and kill, uh, you know, a doctor and his family because they didn't help him and then kill himself after. These things are the emotional part of it. So I wanted to make uh, a real push to talk about that in depth and get people to understand how that, how deep that darkness can feel Mm. and almost with no light, like a black hole, literally where no light enters or escapes Mm. for that matter. And so I really wanted to do that. And I couldn't write this book unless I was okay with going back into that space again and for truly being honest about where my life is now. So recently I went to uh, Massachusetts and to Boston and Mass General and worked with uh, Dr. Safanti, who's in, in Spalding Rehab Center there. And he did a bunch of scans on my brain just to see, because for the longest time I was concerned about having issues um, that may be able to see now with advanced radiology and whatnot. And also because my mom had Alzheimer's. So I thought I'm uh, maybe a hereditary. I'm, I'm going down that route. And I wasn't feeling quite myself lately, but he said, uh, my, my studies showed my scans that I'm, my brain is normal. Mm. That I had an issue with this area of my neck though. And that's what was cutting off some, some areas there. And that's what was causing my headaches different from before, but to return a little bit here and there. Right. So that was probably more scary for my wife than for me. Right. Because, you know, she was concerned about it. And 
obviously those testing, those that testing was after the book was already done. So right. I wasn't able to write that in there. But um, TBI is a long-term thing. It can be if, if your outcome was, was bad and you're still feeling the effects of it. Just the other day, I was at an event in person and a young woman came up to me talking to me about her brother who had a TBI six years ago and still doesn't feel right. Mm. I looked at her and I said, is it because people tell him he's not going to get better or does he believe that? And she said, I think it's both. I think he just doesn't feel like he can do anything. And I said, have him reach out to me. I will mm. direct him in the right in the right way. Because it's just, he doesn't have to live like that. And I think that's that's part of what this is about. I, I made this book, I created it in all its glory um, because I wanted people to be able to be inspired by it and see that success isn't a straight line. And sometimes you're gonna have times where you're just you know, down and out, but you just gotta keep going. You just gotta keep going yeah. because in the depths of my darkness, my best friend Naomi was talking and doing, you know, a, a, an event and created a company and somehow talked to Krissa, who helped me get through that. I didn't even have anything to do with it, mm. you know. And you so you just don't know where that lifeline might be coming from. And it also, your your injury coincided with the abrupt end of your soccer career, yes. which in and of itself is already something that is hard for people to deal with. When you've been playing and putting all these years and years and years, you talk about half your life, mm -hmm. and it's abrupt that you're not just dealing with this in this fog, in this wilderness, but you're also adjusting to the after part of your career. And both was happening at the same time. I also want to ask about mental health because part of the way that this book doesn't allow even its readers to be comfortable, right? We don't get to just kind of gawk and think we know things and feel all nice and warm, but like actually are required to travel with you. Um, and you start right away by talking about how in what ways you contemplating and in your own, your own yes. life. And, um, it comes at a time when we're talking that we've obviously Katie Meyer yeah. um, took her own life in Stanford, followed by a number of other collegiate athletes in particular. Um, the pandemic has only exasperated mental health crisis in this country. How important is it for you, you know, intentionally starting the book off with that and talking upfront about mental health challenges mm -hmm and the path you've had navigating it? I wanted to be straightforward with the mental health piece because so many times we see in the news or online about a famous person who seemed to have it all committing suicide or overdosing or something, and people don't understand it, they don't believe it. How could this happen? He had it all, she had it all. Well. I often say what they didn't have was a will to live and to continue, a reason. Mm. They didn't have a reason to live anymore. And you can have all the, you know, trappings of of the world, riches and success, but if you don't have a reason to live, if you don't feel like you have purpose, then you are more susceptible to overdosing, to committing suicide, to just not caring about life anymore. So that's part of the reason why I, I talk about that so, so deeply, to try to put someone who's never been suicidal into the mm -hmm. mind of someone who has been. And hopefully right. you can understand and see how that might come about. And maybe you can see some signs if you have someone in your life who, who might be sliding down that way. And also, I mean, mental health, mentality in general is something that I've always used to get me to where I, where I went. I mean, without my 
determination, resilience, my mind, my belief, my parents telling me you can do anything you set your mind to, um, that is me. All day, every day has been my whole life, the mental game, if you will. Mm. And this is just another way to think about that, but it's a little bit different because it's almost like my brain was no longer working in the way that I was used to it working. It was broken. So now how do I navigate my life? How do I do that? And as much as I am grateful and lucky, honestly, to be someone who's recovered from a TBI, I know there's a lot of people out there who have them and and won't recover and can't get a surgery and have it be better in a year of therapy after that and on and on. And so I want to say with my, with my mental health piece in this day and age, there are options, uh, you know, different apps you can use different ways to connect to someone who is a professional and can help you. And I would say, reach out, reach out and, and make an effort to try and talk to that person and give them a chance to help you at least get you going in the right direction. Yeah. Not making all your issues disappear. That's not what this is about. It's about making a step in the right direction to better health, to more happiness. Um, Because if you don't have that desire to live, that will to live, that purpose in your life, then Every day will be black like the the depths of the hell I was in. Well, I am so moved and thankful that you were so vulnerable and open with your story because I think it has an impact. Um, And just personally, as somebody obviously who's finishing up a book called Can't Eat a Medal, um, your story was part of a long history of black women athletes who have been chewed up, disposed of, left for forgotten, who have taken their stories into their own hands. Um, I'm sitting literally in front of Althea Gibson's memoir. I have yours here. Wilma's is over there on the floor. And a quote from one of them said, like, I'm going to write myself whole Mm. um, because Mm. you have been bifurcated or the only in this one area or you know, forgotten about the unnamed hero of a game or X, Y, and Z, but you have been able to return to write yourself whole, you know, in this work. And it's just, it's really important to see. I want to ask you right now, what are you doing now to find joy? What are your favorite things to binge? Do you watch women's soccer? Like where, (laughs) what, what are the things that make Brianna like, okay, Friday night, (laughs) this is what I'm doing to, to spark joy in my life. One of the greatest joys of my life is my wife, Krissa. She is truly amazing. She literally was the person that reached down into that hole and offered me a lifeline and pulled me out of it. My best friend in the world, Naomi Gonzalez, who told Krissa about my plight at the time. And I mean, I never would have thought that I could have amazing love and amazing joy in my life to the degree that I have it now. And I think because of all the things I've gone through, I have a level of appreciation and gratitude towards it that is above and beyond anything I would have had had I not been, you know, in the gutter with my face in it uh, multiple times in my life. My hobbies, (laughs) we have a fantastic pool in the backyard and oh. a great uh, a garden area. And believe it or not, I like to garden. I mean, I didn't know that about myself before <laughs> until I had one to, to take care of. And so I love doing that. Also, um, we do binge. We binge watch things. Uh, we, were, we were binge watching the movie The Offer, mm. the series uh, about uh, the, the Godfather movie. I just love seeing how things begin, understanding and wanting to know how something starts, not coming in the middle. I want to know how this started. And so I like shows like that, that tell you the history of things. Um, And then every once in a while, you know, Breaking Bad's not horrible. So (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm a fan. But uh, my life is fantastic now. I'm obviously starting my book tour um, at the end of the month. Um, and next month, I'll be broadcasting with CBS Paramount Plus, the Women's World Cup qualifying. Hey. Uh, and then um, after that, or uh, during that, actually, my documentary drops on July 12th. Uh, the only that CBS Paramount Plus is also producing. So a lot of great things. Busy. Very busy. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all, it's been 20 years in the making, but it's here now. Better late than never. Yeah. Seize it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <You bet. laughs> Absolutely. Well, we cannot wait to look out for your documentary, to see you in the booth, you know, for the qualifying. And of course, for everybody to grab this fantastic book, My Greatest Save, The Brave, Barrier-Breaking Journey of a World Champion Goalkeeper, Rihanna. It was beyond amazing to have you on Burn It All Down. It has been such a pleasure to bear witness to your journey and to read your story and to receive it. And I just will speak for myself to say you have such had such an impact on me when I was the only black girl on my soccer team and I'm packed into Foxborough in 99 to see that run up, to see that game you were in. And I just remember feeling like there is possibilities in the world that I didn't know before. And I think your expanded storytelling here about your life and your entire life um, is just doing that once again, tenfold. So thank you, thank you. for That's everything you are and what you've done um, and for joining us to talk about it today. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say that you are now part of my journey and I appreciate you for taking the time to have me on and hopefully to inspire others uh, throughout the world that hear this. And thank you so much for being part of my journey. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Versteg. Shelby Weldon, of course, is on our webs and socials. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, listen and subscribe, rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. For show links and transcripts, please check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find a link there to our merch at our bonfire store. Um, And thank you to our Patreons. You continue to mean the world to us. If you want to become a donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burn it all down. Burn on, but not out.